Tomorrow's Child by Ray Bradbury. He did not want to be the father of a small blue pyramid. Peter Horn hadn't planned it that way at all. Neither he nor his wife imagined that such a thing could happen to them. They had talked quietly for days about the birth of their coming child. They had eaten normal foods, slept a great deal, taken in a few shows, and, when it was time for her to fly in the helicopter to the hospital, her husband held her and kissed her. Honey, you'll be home in six hours, he said. These new birth mechanisms do everything but father the child for you. She remembered an old-time song. No, no, they can't take that away from me and sang it, and they laughed as the helicopter lifted them over the green way from country to city. The doctor, a quiet gentleman named Walcott, was very confident. Polly Ann, the wife, was made ready for the task ahead, and the father was put, as usual, out in the waiting room, where he could suck on cigarettes or take highballs from a convenient mixer. He was feeling pretty good. This was the first baby, but there was not a thing to worry about. Polly Ann was in good hands. Dr. Walcott came into the waiting room an hour later. He looked like a man who has seen death. Peter Horn, on his third highball, did not move. His hand tightened on the glass, and he whispered, She's dead. No, said Walcott quietly. No, no, she's fine. It's the baby. The baby's dead, then? The baby's alive, too, but... Drink the rest of that drink and come along after me. Something's happened. Yes, indeed, something had happened. The something that had happened had brought the entire hospital out into the corridors. People were going and coming from one room to another. They entered a small, clean room. There was a crowd in the room looking down at a low table. There was something on the table. A small blue pyramid. Why have you brought me here? said Horn, turning to the doctor. The small blue pyramid moved. It began to cry. You don't mean that's it? The doctor named Walcott nodded. The blue pyramid had six blue snake-like appendages and three eyes that blinked from the tips of projecting structures. Horn didn't move. It weighs seven pounds, eight ounces, someone said. Horn thought to himself, They're kidding me. This is some joke. Charlie Rosgall is behind all this. He'll pop in a door any moment and cry, April Fool, and everybody will laugh. That's not my child. Oh, horrible. They're kidding me. Horn stood there, and the sweat rolled down his face. Get me away from here. Horn turned, and his hands were opening and closing without purpose. His eyes were flickering. Walcott held his elbow, talking calmly. This is your child. Understand that, Mr. Horn. No, no, it's not. His mind wouldn't touch the thing. It's a nightmare. Destroy it. You can't kill a human being. Human? Horn blinked tears. That's not human. That's a crime against God. The doctor went on, quickly. We've examined this, child, and we've decided that it is not a mutant, a result of gene destruction or rearrangement. It is not a freak, nor is it sick. Please listen to everything I say to you. Horn stared at the wall. 
his eyes wide and sick. The doctor talked distantly with assurance. The child was somehow affected by the birth pressure. There was a dimensional destructure caused by the simultaneous short-circuitings and malfunctionings of the new birth and hypnosis machines. Well, anyway, the doctor ended lamely, your baby was born into another dimension. Horn did not even nod. He stood there, waiting. Dr. Walcott made it emphatic. Your child is alive, well, and happy. It is lying there, on the table. But because it was born into another dimension, it has a shape alien to us. Our eyes, adjusted to a three-dimensional concept, cannot recognize it as a baby. But it is. Underneath that camouflage, the strange pyramidal shape and appendages, it is your child. Horn closed his mouth and shut his eyes. Can I have a drink? Certainly. A drink was thrust into Horn's hands. Now, let me just sit down. Sit down somewhere a moment. Horn sank wearily into a chair. It was coming clear. Everything shifted slowly into place. It was his child, no matter what. He shuddered. No matter how horrible it looked, it was his first child. At last he looked up and tried to see the doctor. What'll we tell Polly? His voice was hardly a whisper. We'll work that out this morning, as soon as you feel up to it. What happens after that? Is there any way to change it back? We'll try. That is, if you give us permission to try. After all, it's your child. You can do anything with him you want to do. Him? Horn laughed ironically, shutting his eyes. How do you know it's a him? He sank down into darkness. Walcott was visibly upset. Why we, or that is, well, we don't know for sure. Horn drank more of his drink. What if you can't change him back? I realize what a shock it is to you, Mr. Horn. If you can't bear to look upon the child, we'll be glad to raise him here at the Institute for you. Horn thought it over. Thanks, but he still belongs to me and Polly. I'll give him a home, raise him like I'd raise any kid, give him a normal home life, try to learn to love him, treat him right. His lips were numb, he couldn't think. We realize what a job you're taking on, Mr. Horn. This child can't be allowed to have normal playmates. Why, they'd pester it to death in no time. You know how children are. If you decide to raise the child at home, his life will be strictly regimented. He must never be seen by anyone. Is that clear? Yes, yes, it's clear, Doc. Doc, is he all right mentally? Yes, we've tested his reactions. He's a fine, healthy child, as far as nervous response and such things go. Just wanted to be sure. Now the only problem is Polly. Walcott frowned. I confess that one has me stumped. You know it is pretty hard on a woman to hear that her child has been born dead. But this, it's not as clean as death. There's too much chance for shock. And yet I must tell her the truth. Horn put his glass down. 
I don't want to lose Polly, too. I'd be prepared now, if you destroyed the child, to take it. But I don't want Polly killed by the shock of this whole thing. I think we may be able to change the child back. That's the point which makes me hesitate. If I thought the case was hopeless, I'd make out a certificate of euthanasia immediately. But it's at least worth a chance. Horn was very tired. He was shivering quietly, deeply. All right, doctor. It needs food, milk, and love until you can fix it up. It's had a raw deal so far. No reason for it to go on getting a raw deal. When will we tell Polly? Tomorrow afternoon, when she wakes up. Horn got up and walked to the table, which was warmed by a soft illumination from overhead. The blue pyramid sat upon the table as Horn held out his hand. Hello, baby, said Horn. The blue pyramid looked up at Horn with three bright blue eyes. It shifted a tiny blue tendril, touching Horn's fingers with it. Horn shivered. Hello, baby. The doctor produced a special feeding bottle. This is woman's milk. Here we go. Baby looked upward through clearing mists. Baby saw the shapes moving over him and knew them to be friendly. Baby was newborn, but already alert, strangely alert. Baby was aware. There were moving objects above and around Baby. Six cubes of a grey-white colour bending down. Six cubes with hexagonal appendages and three eyes to each cube. Then there were two other cubes coming from a distance over a crystalline plateau. One of the cubes was white. It had three eyes, too. There was something about this white cube that Baby liked. There was an attraction, some relation. There was an odor to the white cube that reminded Baby of itself. Shrill sounds came from the six bending-down grey-white cubes. Sounds of curiosity and wonder. It was like a kind of piccolo music, all playing at once. Now the two newly arrived cubes, the white cube and the grey cube, were whistling. After a while, the white cube extended one of its hexagonal appendages to touch Baby. Baby responded by putting out one of its tendrils from its pyramidal body. Baby liked the white cube. Baby liked. Baby was hungry. Baby liked. Maybe the white cube would give it food. The grey cube produced a pink globe for Baby. Baby was now to be fed. Good. Good. Baby accepted food eagerly. Food was good. All the grey-white cubes drifted away, leaving only the nice white cube standing over Baby, looking down and whistling over and over, over and over. They told Polly the next day. Not everything, just enough, just a hint. They told her the baby was not well in a certain way. They talked slowly and in ever-tightening circles in upon Polly. Then Dr. Walcott gave a long lecture on the birth mechanisms, how they helped a woman in her labor, and how, this time, they short-circuited. 
There was another man of scientific means present, and he gave her a dry little talk on dimensions, holding up his fingers so. One, two, three, and four. Still another man talked of energy and matter. Another spoke of underprivileged children. Polly finally sat up in bed and said, What's all the talk for? What's wrong with my baby that you should all be talking so long? Walcott told her. Of course, you can wait a week and see it, he said, or you can sign over guardianship of the child to the Institute. There's only one thing I want to know, said Polly. Dr. Walcott raised his brows. Did I make the child that way? asked Polly. You most certainly did not. The child isn't a monster, genetically? asked Polly. The child was thrust into another continuum. Otherwise, it is perfectly normal. Polly's tight, lined mouth relaxed. She said, simply, Then bring me my baby. I want to see him. Please, now. They brought the child. The horns left the hospital the next day. Polly walked out on her own two good legs, with Peter Horn following her, looking at her in quiet amazement. They did not have the baby with them. That would come later. Horn helped his wife into their helicopter and sat beside her. He lifted the ship, whirring into the warm air. You're a wonder, he said. Am I? she said, lighting a cigarette. You are. You didn't cry. You didn't do anything. He's not so bad, you know, she said. Once you get to know him, I can even hold him in my arms. Here she laughed. He noticed a nervous tremor in the laugh, however. No, I didn't cry, Pete, because that's my baby. Or he will be. He isn't dead. I thank God for that. He's... I don't know how to explain. Still unborn. I like to think he hasn't been born yet. We're waiting for him to show up. I have confidence in Dr. Walcott, haven't you? You're right, you're right. He reached over and held her hand. You know something? You're a peach. I can hold on, she said, sitting there looking ahead as the green country swung under them. As long as I know something good will happen. I won't let it hurt or shock me. I'll wait six months, and then maybe I'll kill myself. Polly! Peter Horn took the copter home over the smooth rolling greens of Griffith. How do we look to it? asked his wife. I asked Walcott about that. He said we probably look funny to him also. He's in one dimension, we're in another. You mean we don't look like men and women to him? If we could see ourselves, no. But remember, the baby knows nothing of men or women. To the baby, whatever shape we're in, we are natural. It's accustomed to seeing us, shaped like cubes or squares or pyramids, as it sees us from its separate dimension. The baby's had no other experience, no other norm with which to compare what it sees. We are its norm. On the other hand, the baby seems weird to us because we compare it to our accustomed shapes and sizes. Yes, I see. I see. Baby was conscious of movement. The oblong moved in the air over a vast, bright plain of pyramids 
hexagons, oblongs, pillars, bubbles, and multicolored cubes. One white cube made a whistling noise. The other white cube replied with a whistling. Baby felt sleepy. Baby closed his eyes, settled his pyramidal youngness upon the lap of the white cube, and made faint little noises. He's asleep, said Polly Horn. Summer came. It was like having a dog or a cat in the house. At least that's how Polly looked upon it. Peter Horn watched her and observed exactly how she talked and petted the small pea. It was pea this and pea that, but somehow with some reserve, and sometimes she would look around the room and touch herself, and her hands would clench, and she would look lost and afraid, as if she were waiting for someone to arrive. In September, Polly reported to her husband. He can say father. Yes, he can. Come on, Pete. Say father. She held the blue warm pyramid up. Wheelie! Whistled the little warm blue pyramid. Again? Wheelie! Whistled the pyramid. For God's sake, stop, said Pete Horn. He took the child from her and put it in the nursery, where it whistled over and over that name, that name, that name. Horn came out and poured himself a stiff drink. Polly was laughing quietly. Isn't that terrific? she said. Even his voice is in the fourth dimension. Won't it be nice when he learns to talk later? We'll give him Hamlet's soliloquy to memorize, and he'll say it, but it'll come out like something from James Joyce. Aren't we lucky? Give me a drink. You've had enough, he said. Thanks, I'll help myself, she said, and did. The big thing happened early in February. Horn, arriving home in his helicopter, was appalled to see a crowd of neighbors gathered on the lawn of his home. Some of them were sitting, others were standing, still others were moving away with frightened expressions on their faces. Polly was walking the child in the yard. Polly was quite drunk. She held the small blue pyramid by the hand and walked him up and down. One of the neighbors turned, Oh, Mr. Horn, it's the cutest thing. Where'd you find it? Polly held the pyramid up. Say, Father, she cried, trying to focus on her husband. Wee! Oh, no, he's not dangerous. He's friendly as a baby. The neighbors began to move off. Come back, Polly waved at them. Don't you want to see my baby? Isn't he simply beautiful? He slapped her face. My baby, she said brokenly. He slapped her again and again until she quit saying it and collapsed. He picked her up and took her into the house. Then he came out and took P in, and then he sat down and phoned the Institute. Dr. Walcott, this is Horn. You'd better have your stuff ready. It's tonight or not at all. The Institute hall smelled clean, neat, sterile. Dr. Walcott walked along it, followed by Peter Horn and his wife, Polly, who was holding P in her arms. They turned in at a doorway and stood in a large room. In the center of the room were two tables with large black hoods suspended over them. Behind the tables were a number of machines with dials and levers on them. There was the faintest perceptible hum in the room. Pete Horn looked at Polly for a moment. 
The doctor put his hands together. I want to tell you what I've been doing in the last few months, he said. I've tried to bring the baby out of whatever hell dimension fourth, fifth, or sixth that it is in. Walcott leaned forward. I can't bring P out, but I can put you people in. Horn looked at the machine in the corner. You mean you can send us into P's dimension? If you want to go badly enough. Polly said nothing. She held Pete quietly and looked at him. Will I see my baby as he really is, if I go into his dimension? Walcott nodded. Polly said, then I want to go. Hold on, said Peter Horn. We've only been in this office five minutes and already you're promising away the rest of your life. I'll be with my real baby. I won't care. Dr. Walcott, what will it be like in that dimension on the other side? There will be no change that you will notice. You will both seem the same size and shape to one another. The pyramid will become a baby, however. You will have added an extra sense. You will be able to interpret what you see differently. But won't we turn into oblongs or pyramids ourselves? And won't you, Doctor, look like some geometrical form instead of a human? Does a blind man who sees for the first time give up his ability to hear or taste? No? All right, then. Stop thinking in terms of subtraction. Think in terms of addition. You're gaining something. You lose nothing. You know what a human looks like, which is an advantage P doesn't have, looking out from his dimension. When you arrive over there, you can see Dr. Walcott as both things, a geometrical abstract or a human, as you choose. It will probably make quite a philosopher out of you. There's one other thing, however. And that? To everyone else in the world, you, your wife, and the child, will look like abstract forms. The baby a triangle, your wife an oblong, perhaps, yourself a hexagonal solid. The world will be shocked, not you. We'll be freaks. You'll be freaks, but you won't know it. You'll have to lead a secluded life. Until you find a way to bring all three of us out together. That's right. It may be ten years, twenty. I won't recommend it to you. You may both go quite mad as a result of feeling apart, different. If there's a grain of paranoia in you, it'll come out. It's up to you, naturally. Peter Horn looked at his wife. She looked back gravely. We'll go, said Peter Horn. Into peace dimension, said Walcott. Into peace dimension. Horn scratched his head slowly. This seems such a long way around to where we want to go. He sighed. I wish we could have another kid and forget all about this one. This baby is the one that counts. I dare say Polly here wouldn't want any other, would you, Polly? This baby, this baby, said Polly. What do we need for the trip? Nothing. Just lie on these tables and be still. A humming filled the room, a sound of power and energy and warmth. They lay on the tables, holding hands, Polly and Peter Horn. A double black hood came down over them. They were both in darkness. 
From somewhere far off in the hospital, a voice clock sang, Tick-tock, seven o'clock, tick-tock, seven o'clock, fading away in a little soft gong. The low humming grew louder. The machine glittered with hidden, shifting, compressed power. Is there any danger? cried Peter Horn. None! The power screamed. The very atoms of the room divided against each other into alien and enemy camps. The two sides fought for supremacy. Horn gaped his mouth to shout. His insides became pyramidal, oblong, with terrific electric seizures. He felt a pulling, sucking, demanding power claw at his body. The power yearned and nuzzled and pressed through the room. He began to melt like running wax. A clicking, sliding noise. Horn thought swiftly, but calmly. How will it be in the future, with Polly and me and P at home, and people coming over for a cocktail party? How will it be? Suddenly he knew how it would be, and the thought of it filled him with a great awe and a sense of credulous faith and time. They would live in the same white house on the same quiet green hill with a high fence around it to keep out the merely curious and Dr. Walcott would come to visit, park his beetle in the yard below, come up the steps, and at the door would be a tall, slim, white rectangle to meet him, with a dry martini in its snake-like hand. And in an easy chair across the room would sit a salt-white oblong, with a copy of Nietzsche open, reading, smoking a pipe, and on the floor would be P, running about, and there would be talk, and more friends would come in, and the white oblong and the white rectangle would laugh and joke and offer little finger sandwiches and more drinks, and it would be a good evening of talk and laughter. That's how it would be. Click. The humming noise stopped. The hood lifted from horn. It was all over. They were in another dimension. He heard Polly cry out, Polly was running. She stooped and picked up something from the floor. It was Peter Horn's son. A living, pink-faced, blue-eyed boy, lying in her arms, gasping and blinking and crying. The pyramidal shape was gone. Polly was crying with happiness. Peter Horn walked across the room, trembling, trying to smile himself to hold on to Polly and the child, both at the same time, and weep with them. Well, said Walcott, standing back. He did not move for a long while. He only watched the white oblong and the slim white rectangle holding the blue pyramid on the opposite side of the room. An assistant came in the door. Shh, said Walcott, hand to his lips. They'll want to be alone. A while. Come along. He took the assistant by the arm and tiptoed across the room. The white rectangle and the white oblong didn't even look up when the door closed. That was Tomorrow's Child by Ray Bradbury, read by Sean Barrett. Ray Bradbury's short stories are produced by Matt Thompson and are a Rocket House production for BBC Radio.